Welcome to Health Unchained. Quick update for you listeners. If you have Instagram or Twitter, follow me to track the latest in blockchain and healthcare news. I was also recently at TokenFest, a conference in Boston, where I met an array of blockchain startups. It was truly a very special conference. I'm looking forward to the next one. A special shout out to the Steam folks. I'm planning to restart my efforts on my Steemit account for more health tech news um, on the Steemit.com platform. So I'll keep you posted about that. And now let's get to the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I'll be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Today, we have a very special guest, Philip Parker from Coral Health. He is the chief operating officer and co-founder of this company. And what they're trying to do is build the blockchain for personalized medicine. Or at least that's the title of their white paper. So, uh, Phil, Philip, thank you so much for joining. Um, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Ray. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, do you kind of want to introduce yourself a little bit, uh, maybe your background, where, how you got into Coral Health, why you started it? Yeah, sure. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm the co-founder and chief operating officer. Um, my background is kind of primarily in both understanding data assets as well as monetizing those, especially as it relates to electronic medical records. So I have a lot of experience kind of working with EHR data, insurance claims to figure out kind of stories about patients' health and then to help um, my clients monetize those various elements. So for example, one big initiative we worked on was kind of using EHR data to figure out how different patients responded to various treatments and kind of to compare various treatments to see which one's more effective and which one payers should be covering. Um, Coral Health was really founded as a way to solve this kind of sticky problem in healthcare where even though we've spent a ton of money moving from paper to electronic medical records, um, data is still incredibly difficult to access. And even most patients aren't able to access their own records. So Coral Health is founded as a way to kind of create a more connected future in healthcare by giving data um, control back to patients and helping patients be the person to then route that information to the various entities that need it. Right, and I saw that in your white paper, you highlight an article from SureScripts, a study that was done in 2017, actually the end of 2017, where it says data communication between health providers was so limited that a third of patients report having to physically bring their medical records from one provider to another. And I've personally had that experience. I would have to bring in like a a CD with my x-ray, for example, to another specialist. How, so, so how are you working to solve that problem? Yeah, so that's a, that's a very common problem. And even, you know, even though it looks like just a third, those are kind of the third of patients that are actually bothering to do that. Um, so, I mean, quite recently when I switched primary care providers just a couple months ago, I had to physically go to my previous primary care physician's office, sign a release form, and then hope that they were able to fax that data over in time for my scheduled appointment. Uh, they did, but they didn't give any guarantee that they actually would. 
Um, so what Coral Health is doing is using the new Smart on Fire protocols to essentially create a secure connection between each place that your data is um, saved right now and your mobile device. So we're able to pull your records from any type of provider that you've seen, including all the largest EHR vendors like Cerner, Epic, Allscripts, so that all that data that's you know, currently fragmented is able to be collected by you, the patient, in one secure location, where you're then able to share that data with anyone that you choose. And right, and for our audience, if you don't know what Smart on Fire is, it actually stands for Substitutable Medical Apps Reusable Technology on Fire, which is Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources. And these are special protocols that are specific to healthcare and health electronic health record systems to you know be able to move around specific types of data and let them communicate with different systems easily. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. These two standards actually developed independently. Um, so FHIR is essentially a common language for um, healthcare data so that data stored at various hospitals um, is able to be standardized effectively. So it's, it's kind of a standard that, that actually just developed in the last about five to six years. Um, but very recently, you've noticed um, a lot of the major tech companies, including Amazon, Google, Microsoft, have all gone behind fire. So that's created a lot of momentum. And most of the EHR vendors you probably haven't heard of, um, the Epics and Cerners that I mentioned, have also supported the standard. So while it's not universally adopted today, um, all the momentum's behind this as a way to standardize healthcare data. And then we're using smart uh, IT, which was developed at Boston Children's kind of independently before it merged with the FHIR standard. Um, we're using that to create that secure connection between your various doctor's offices and your, and your mobile device. Um, and what we're doing with that platform is essentially, because the data is standardized, we're able to aggregate all that information from across your providers. So instead of having to go to various um, patient portal. So each, you know, each place you've seen has its own portal. You have to remember the login. What we're able to do is create a secure, persistent connection between your phone and where that um, data is stored. So that all you have to do is log in once with those patient portal credentials. And then each time you visit that doctor's office or hospital, we automatically pull those records for you and alert you and say, hey, for example, you have a new blood test. Do you want to check out the result? And because all the data is standardized, um, we're able to aggregate that across every, from every place that you've received care, and we're able to make that searchable. Um, so essentially, instead of having to do all this manual work to kind of figure out your medical history, um, we visually show that to you, and we can able, we're able to show that um, no matter which provider you see. Interesting. So our smartphone is the device that actually holds on to all that information. Is it actually stored in our cell phone, or where is the data stored? Uh, yeah, so by default, it's only it's stored encrypted on your smartphone. There is an option, if you choose, to have that stored in the cloud as well, fully encrypted. Um, and essentially what that allows is, even if you don't have an internet connection, you still have access to your data, which is you know incredibly crucial in the event of a medical emergency or if you're in a hospital and you're trying to share that data with a doctor and the Wi-Fi connection isn't great. So essentially, we're giving you full control of your data. And because essentially we're just using, we're just supporting um, seven different data types that are currently supported by FHIR, um, these data elements aren't that large. So we're not talking at this point about storing your x-rays on your phone. 
um, what we're storing right now are things like your medications, mm -hmm. your lab results, um, your vital signs. So about seven different data types that do a very good job of describing you, but don't include some of the larger data types that wouldn't fit on your phone. I see. So more text-based or numerical values that can be stored. Yeah, so exactly. It's... Primarily numerical values at this point. Um, but Fire is kind of more or less standardizing other data types as well. So while we're currently supporting V7, there is the ability to kind of easily expand that number of supported data types in the future. So let's take the example you actually mentioned where let's say I have my cell phone and I have, am, you know, have an emergency and I'm not able to unlock my phone. What would be the situation there? How can a health provider be able to access my data if I'm unconscious? Yeah, so there's a couple of different mechanisms to do that. One mechanism that we're actually building out right now uh, in collaboration with kind of our, our doctor advisory board is this kind of interface for doctors to see your data. So right now, the app that we've developed um, that we're launching in the next couple of weeks is really patient-focused, but in tandem, we're building out um, a healthcare provider version where essentially providers are able to flip through their different patients and see all their records. So essentially, a patient ahead of time could share data with their provider uh, and that provider would have access to their information. And that provider could easily scroll through different patients or easily search for different lab values, essentially helping the patient fix a lot of the interoperability problems in healthcare. So one of the biggest problems right now um, that doctors constantly tell me about is, hey, you know, I'm able to see data from other EPIC providers, for example, um, if a patient comes to me, but if a patient comes from a different EHR platform, I have no visibility into their medical records. Um, and that's been a massive problem in healthcare ever since we moved to electronic health records about 10 years ago. So what we're able to do is because we're aggregating it on the patient side, and that patient's able to share data um, directly to the doctor, that doctor is able to now access information that's not just coming from Epic, it's coming from all the different large EHR vendors as well. Oh, that's awesome. That makes it very convenient for the patient and then the provider all he needs to do or she needs to do is just simply ask for permission to access the patient's record how exactly. does, i was gonna say how does that process the permissioning process work yeah so right now kind of what we built out because we started as a blockchain company before we pivoted slightly to you know implementing smart on fire um when we have the background of this app, that encryption, is essentially each mobile device has um, an associated private key of it that's able to decrypt the information. So we've already kind of built out a mechanism that we talk about in the white paper um, to essentially allow patients to decrypt their information and then re-encrypt it with a particular provider's key as well as their own, so that now both entities have decryption access to the record. So it's essentially relying on building in private and public key encryption that's pretty prevalent right now in crypto, and um, implementing that on the back end. So neither patients nor providers are aware of this technology, but we're able to work that in so that we're able to both secure your information as well as make it easy to securely share that information. Interesting. So it was interesting you mentioned that you kind of pivoted from blockchain type of company to more smart on fire technology company. Yeah, Does that so, mean you're, not, you're, you're yes. still using blockchain to a certain degree, but it's not your the focus of the work. The focus of the work is to be interoperable with... Yeah, exactly. Um, so in healthcare, you know, the first big challenge, or for any blockchain uh, 
the big challenge is, you know, essentially how do you first get the data into your system? Um, and that's very, that's a massive challenge in healthcare, especially before Spar and Fire came about. So while we're using the blockchain, what we're primarily using the blockchain for is both securely sharing that information, maintaining um, kind of a permissioned um, log of who has access to what data, as well as for essentially immutably storing hash reference to that data so that we can be 100% confident that um, the data that's in our system has not been hacked or tampered with after the patient um, has pulled it onto their phone. And what that allows us to do is that any provider that's using data for our system can be fully confident the data is accurate. So it essentially removes a lot of the kind of hesitancy on the part of providers to use data that's coming from patients. And this is really kind of the value of the blockchain that we saw initially in healthcare. Um, and, and it's a use case that Estonia has actually been, mm -hmm. has implemented um, several years ago. And it seems like, you know, all indications that that system went quite well. And in fact, it's even expanding from Estonia um, that same company that did it there is also now working into the UK system as well. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot of blockchain type of projects going on where governments are being basically run on the blockchain, or at least that's the mission that they are going for. So it's interesting. Yeah, of course, the big issue there is kind of scalability. Um, so that, that hasn't been totally solved in our mind. In fact, one reason... Um, we've kind of not, I wouldn't say, you know, we still are fairly involved in the blockchain space, but we're allocating more of our resources towards this patient app and our provider app. And that's essentially because to a large extent, a lot of the necessary infrastructure in the blockchain space hasn't been built out yet. Mm -hmm. um, so while we'd kind of heard a lot about Hyperledger Fabric as a solution um, that would work in healthcare because you kind of need that sort of permissioned approach to make sure that um, a patient's able to delete records, which is, you know, a, a very like core feature of blockchain is that a patient wouldn't be able to delete information. So while we've kind of put, you know, a little bit of faith in hopefully fabric being built out, when we actually dove into it and tried to build on top of it, we noticed that we were kind of more or less starting from scratch. And kind of in addition to the tech being fairly immature at this point, um, the kind of the demand for blockchain solutions is still very mature as well. So a lot of companies are still just at an exploratory phase, trying to figure out, um, for example, they've come to hospitals have come to us saying, how can we use the blockchain? Where does this fit into our current IT? And those kind of conversations um, we anticipate just taking a very long time to play out. So while the Smart and Fire app approach that we're doing, um, we've been able to build quite quickly and you know, have a very good route to scaling adoption. The blockchain kind of consulting side of the business, we, we kind of anticipate being a little bit slower of a burn. Yeah, no, I could see that. It's very difficult to convince hospital systems or provider groups to adopt blockchain when maybe they're still, you know, in the process of training their employees and staff and providers on their EHR systems that they just recently bought. And that's, high, you know, top of the line, but still requires a lot of training and it's not perfect either. So, Yeah, exactly. Even just rolling, doing an EHR implementation, you know, in a large health system, it's typically about six months to two years. <laughs> so it, it's not at all easy. And kind of just to kind of build off of what you said, it's kind of more or less my opinion from you know, my experience at Athena Health, um, as well as my co-founder's experience working with 
providers as well. We're very much focused on monetization through working with insurance companies, patient advocacy groups, and pharma, and less focused on monetization, monetizing um, through you know direct contracting with health systems. Um, it's we've just noticed that essentially uh, the contracting process is much slower, and while there's a ton of demand, a ton of potential when you have this data of the patient's um, control to kind of rework a lot of existing markets in healthcare. Um, we don't want to, you know, sit around <laughs> and wait until we've actually convinced, you know, a large set of hospitals to do this. Um, we're moving forward with direct-to-consumer marketing and then moving forward with a number of applications that, you know, can really leverage that data to improve the efficiency of healthcare. That's interesting. Can you share a little bit about your experiments with, you know, working with payers or insurance companies and also what has pharma, the pharma industry been like work to work with so far? Yeah. Um, so our experience with insurers um, really comes from one of my co-founders, um, Andy Park. He had founded a previous company that essentially scraped medical policies. So all medical policies in the U.S. are publicly available. They're just buried within um, these insurance companies' websites, and they're not at all structured, so it's very hard to figure out, you know, changes in insurance policies or whether or not a patient's covered anymore. So what his previous company did was essentially structure that data. Um, so over about 80% of all medical policies in the U.S., about 100,000 policies, he structured those, and he was able to sell that as intelligence um, to pharmaceutical companies in terms of, you know, which insurers have now put a prior authorization requirement on a treatment. Um, and then he kind of turned around and had experience selling that to insurance companies where essentially um, those insurance companies want to keep up with their competitors and make sure they're covering similar treatments. So that, that's kind of been our experience with insurers that essentially when they find data very useful, um, it's not too hard to essentially receive a, bu a budget allocation from them. Um, and in fact, we've kind of, one of our main use cases is a similar idea where instead of selling this as information to insurers and pharmaceutical companies, we instead use those medical policies as a way to figure out and determine what treatments a patient qualifies for. So once you've added your data, um, once you've added your data into our app, essentially what we can do is then figure out every single treatment you qualify for. So instead of having to guess um, whether or not a pharmacy will cover that, we can tell you ahead of time here are the treatments you qualify for. And we've also vetted this idea a lot with insurance companies to say, you know, right now your prior authorization um, process is incredibly manual. Mm -hmm. So essentially they rely on doctors to fax over information about patients to figure out whether or not a patient qualifies for a given treatment. Um, what we've talked to these insurers about and received a fair amount of market validation is that um, the large payers are very interested in using this as a way to automate that prior authorization process. So instead of relying on doctors for that information, they can instead get it directly from patients and figure out yes, no, whether a patient is qualified for a treatment in real time instead of, you know, the current average is about a week for a prior authorization. So I'm going to be a little bit cynical here, but I have a question for you. Is it possible that the prior authorization process that insurers have, you know, put in place and sort of very torturous, the path to actually get that approval, is that put in place maybe to dissuade providers or dissuade patients from actually getting a certain treatment that might be too expensive? 
Yeah, so it's funny, we actually hear that question a whole lot. You know, there's a lot of, you know, understandable skepticism about insurers when they talk about, you know, making your process more efficient. You immediately think like, oh, what if that just increases the payer's cost? Um, but there's actually some pretty good evidence to the contrary, both in our discussions with Humana as well as Optum, um, in terms of their willingness to use this type of solution. But in addition, um, you can kind of already notice a fair amount of market validation for this idea. So for example, McKesson bought Cover My Meds for about 1.5 billion last year. And what Cover My Meds does is essentially slightly automates the prior authorization process by automatically pre-filling the forms. So essentially, um, it integrates with the EHR system to pull in some of the patient's data ahead of time to make it the data entry process a little bit easier for that doctor. So insurers have actually already gone behind that. Um, one of the big problems is, and why it's only led to about 8% automation of prior authorizations, is that it's only pre-filling a little bit of that data because that EHR um, database doesn't have access to the patient's full medical history. Hmm. That Essentially, that system only knows what happened at that particular doctor's office or that particular hospital. It doesn't know the patient's full medical history, which is almost always needed in terms of actually figuring out if the patient's qualified. So they've only been able to automate a small number of these prior authorizations, um, but it's important to kind of recognize that um, insurance companies have gone behind that effort. And there's a similar company um, that was funded heavily by Humana called Availity, which essentially has the exact same workflow. So I think the payers kind of recognize, um, and there's been so much national pushback on the prior authorization process because it's so incredibly time consuming for providers that I think payers are essentially being like, okay, we're gonna try to make this process easier for you, but we're still not gonna cover expensive treatments. So they'd rather kind of do the low hanging fruit, make this process a little easier than essentially push back and not have prior authorizations. Sure, and I'm sure patients, you know, would like a quicker turnaround time as well because they're sitting around waiting to see if they're able to get, you know, a certain treatment that might potentially save their lives. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the ridiculous thing is, 50% of patients um, aren't even able to get that prior authorization approved that same day. So essentially, they have to. And what's often happening is, you know, you get your prescription, you go over your to your pharmacy, you're like, okay, got a prescription. They're like, oh, sorry, there's a prior authorization. Uh, you're going to have to go back and check with your doctor. So it's multiple visits that are happening, both in terms of you going to a pharmacy and having a wasted visit, and you having to call your doctor and hope that that doctor, you know, is prompt about calling up your insurer and trying to figure out the authorization. Right. And another quote from your white paper is about a $1.3 trillion annually uh, of healthcare spending in the U.S. is categorized as wasteful or of no value to patients. Yeah, the so the are... funny thing there is like that waste I just described isn't even recorded in that 1.3 trillion. Like the waste <laughs> of me as a patient having to go to that pharmacy and losing, you know, hours of my day. Um, that's not even recorded. But that what that 1.3 trillion does cover and what we're able to kind of reduce to a large extent is that redundant testing that's being done all the time. You know, you already had this blood work done in a different hospital, but they don't have your information. So they're reordering it. Um, and that's, that's one common thing. Another big element of that waste is, is something that's, you know, pretty pathetic that's happening, but it's these avoidable drug-drug interactions. So you're at one hospital, they gave you a certain treatment, you get transferred to another, and they want to prescribe an additional treatment that happens to 
have an adverse reaction when it's combined with the previous one. So this is incredibly common. It's one of the major, major causes of um, hospital emissions. And, you know, it's entirely preventable. If you know all the medications a patient's received, there's no excuse for giving them a drug that's counterindicated already. Absolutely. All that information is online somewhere. It's not very difficult to find. If you just search the two drugs on Google, you'll be able to know. But, you know, in yeah, that situation, when not, the, in the yeah. moment when the patient is getting prescribed and when they're like, you know, either they're sick and they just want to get better. So they're not really thinking about how the drugs might be interacting with each other. So Yeah. And there is a really good doctor app. So actually probably the most popular physician app is um, it's called Hippocrates. So it was actually bought by my old company, Athena Health. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, most doctors in the U.S. use it. So they do, and what that does is essentially tells you, like, all right, you enter in the drugs the patient's on, it tells you if they're counterindicated, especially, you know, given dose levels. What's really missing and where Coral Health comes in is making sure that that doctor even knows all the medications you're on. So that's, that's the even bigger problem is, you know, they know how to stop counterindications, but if they don't know all the treatments you've been on, there's nothing you can do about it. I see. So... Is there a way for insur insurers to also leverage Smart on Fire within their own systems? Yeah, so I'm not quite as privy to their internal systems in terms of how exactly uh, you know Smart on Fire could be applied there. In terms of what we could do that would make a massive difference for insurers and what we've already talked to them about is essentially reducing all their administrative time being spent on prior authorizations. Okay. So they're spending on average about 30 minutes of staff time per prior authorization request. And one good example to keep in mind is United Health alone processes about 100 million prior authorizations a year. So we're talking 30 minutes on average, 100 million prior authorizations, and just one payer. So that's what that's the kind of reason we have quite a bit. Um, that's why we're focused so much on this, is essentially um, there's a, just a tremendous amount of administrative time being poured into things um, where it's, it's quite silly. Essentially, the patient data they're spending most of their time trying to match up, it already is in electronic format. It's just that where it is at the doctor's office isn't speaking to the insurance um, database. So essentially, what we do is instead of trying to make those two communicate, what we do is we have all the patient's data and using the, using the um, medical policies we've already structured, we can automatically determine what treatments a patient qualifies for. So you can actually more or less remove both parties to that and make sure that the doctors and insurers are mostly focused on those harder cases where it's not clear if a patient would qualify for a treatment. I see. So these medical policies, are they written as like smart contracts on a blockchain? Or are these... Yeah, so, you know, there are multiple ways to do it. There are a lot of benefits to doing it. Um, on the blockchain where essentially you're feeding it data that you're fully confident about and then you've just programmed in the medical policies into smart contracts so they can come to a, a immediate determination. And to some extent you can even, you know, you mentioned earlier our payers behind this kind of thing. Um, to a large extent, you can actually remove the patient skepticism of these insurance companies by almost divorcing the insurance company from this process. So you can said you, you can pretty much just be like, all right, here's the policy, here's your information. In the vast majority of instances, we're now able to determine whether or not you qualify. There will definitely be some instances where we don't, and essentially the previous process would just kick in at that point. 
then you'd have pretty much the current manual review for the harder cases where it's like, all right, I don't know if you failed three treatments yet, so you qualify for the fourth. Um, but there is kind of, we can get it from about 8% right now to much more closer to about 50 to 60% on it. What platform are you using in order to exchange or in order to create these smart contracts? So you're saying you're using Hyperledger for now? And yeah. yeah, right now we're using Hyperledger. Um, there's kind of a number of reasons for that. As I mentioned, in healthcare, we haven't found a way to not use a permission blockchain, um, especially with GDPR saying that patients have the right to you know, essentially delete any information that they want uh, from a particular company's database. Um, we pretty much have to go with a permission approach. Um, in terms of choices within permission blockchains, we have you know vetted a number of them. So Aon is a company out of Toronto. I'm not sure if you've heard of them. Essentially, it's a fork of Ethereum where they also created an enterprise um, solution that's permissioned. Um, you know, we've been in talks with them for a while, but Fabric just is a little bit more of a developer community at this point. Um, although, sadly, even Fabric is not fantastic. Uh, if you go onto their chats, there's really not a ton of activity happening. I see. And even like, even the most decentralized blockchains, there's still ways of your information getting out there anyways. I don't think any system is 100% secure or private. Um, you know, like, you know, you even mentioned this in your white paper. Let's say there is a situation where a provider had a hard copy or printed out records and then you request to have them delete the records. So they can delete them on their digital in their digital formats, but they are not going to be able to prove that they, you know, discarded all the paper. Uh, so that's something that I want like people to kind of understand. I think there's this conception that blockchain will solve privacy and security to 100%, but that's not actually possible. Yeah, and to a large extent, our solution kind of rests on falling back on existing legal frameworks. So if a patient say you need to delete that, we're kind of relying on HIPAA and GDPR to have the negative penalties to enforce that behavior. Um, so we couldn't, for example, you know, guarantee it's deleted, but we could be quite confident that that hospital um, within our permission network, you know, has a very, very large incentive to delete that information if the patient requests. Hmm. Um, but that's not that's much much harder in a public. Um, blockchain where essentially anyone can be hosting the data. You kind of need a permission approach so that you can limit the number of people that are able to you know, essentially store or dump your copies of information. Um, especially because, as you mentioned, no data is actually fully secure. So like GDPR doesn't recognize encryption as like kind of meeting the privacy requirements, uh, which is a little bit funny, but at the same time, you know, advances in, in encryption probably will happen. And if some random node was able to store a patient's data, then encryption, you know, to some extent, we were able to, you know, with quantum computing, um, crack the current standard of encryption, then, you know, that would still be incredibly problematic for whichever patient's records were stored there. Hmm. So what would be the argument for a more public or decentralized blockchain to store records? Yeah, um, I think a public blockchain you know, makes a ton of sense in almost every single use case. Uh, I think it really, when it comes back to healthcare, there's just such a constricted regulatory environment where 
you know, it's actually not, it's not ridiculously restricted, but like we're able to do pretty much everything we want to do anyway without really Kepler or GDPR being a problem. Um, but it does impact your choice of blockchain. Um, so for, for other use cases, I'd say it makes a ton of sense, especially if your use case is somewhat supplanting, especially if your use case is like contrary to the vested interests of a particular market. Uh, that's where, so for example, you know, if you're trying to supplant a government through creating, you know, smart contracts that can handle a lot of the functions of the government, the government could easily reply just by banning the blockchain in that jurisdiction. I mean, that's kind of already what we see in China and other areas where, you know, blockchain's not supplanting governments, it's just getting shut down. Um, so if your use case really relies on supplanting an existing power force, I think it's kind of almost necessary you're a block, that you're a public blockchain. Um, in healthcare, the permission blockchain we were thinking about was essentially networks, for example, like regional hospitals, where essentially those hospitals actually have uh, they're already mandated by law to give access to their patients access to their data. So we don't have to worry about that being an issue. And in addition, these hospitals do have a positive interest in sharing data amongst themselves because it reduces a lot of their cost of information sharing. Um, and so they act like nodes and they all hold every patient's data, but it's all encrypted but the, it's in their interest to hold that data securely anyways. So it works out both in a social sense and in an economic sense and in a clinical sense. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's a pretty appealing solution. I think that I don't think that many hospitals have gone behind yet just because there's, you know, still some new to them and they tend to move a little bit um, slower. Um, but that is an area where, you know, you can, you can kind of envision a ton of values to a hospital. So one major problem for hospitals right now is around data security. Mm -hmm. um, so essentially what's happening uh, is very, very prevalent today are ransomware attacks where yeah. essentially someone do oftentimes the sloppiness at that, you know, people aren't really changing their passwords or their passwords get out or they click on clickbait. Um, a hacker gets access to their database, encrypts it all, and then demands typically Bitcoin in order for that decryption, in order to release the decryption key. So that, that's very, very um, prevalent today. And a lot of hospitals don't really have good backups of their data that they could turn on in an emergency. Um, in addition, a lot of hospitals are moving towards cloud-based solutions. Um, so Athena Health, the EHR vendor I worked at before founding Coral, um, that was a cloud. That's a cloud-based solution. Um, and what happens periodically is essentially. Uh, it goes down. Um, it's not that yeah. common, but you know when healthcare data goes down, that's a massive deal. So it went down for I think about you know 24 hours about you know six months ago, and doctors pretty much couldn't access any of the patient's data. So another benefit of the blockchain here is essentially it's a local store where in the event that their their main server goes down they have a copy of the data that they could use. Hmm. So it's not like, for example, Dropbox, where you still have access to your local files as well as the cloud. So Athena Health wasn't working like that. It was actually only accessible via cloud. You'd have to log in to access any data. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. And it has a backup server. Like everything's supposed to be cloned and that's supposed to kick in um, if Athena net goes down. But 
unfortunately they tend to be correlated both of those going down at the same time so <laughs> so unfortunately the backup went down at the exact same time that the primary servers went down so and, and this this exact same thing happened at all scripts as well this isn't unique to Athena I'm just pointing them out as kind of like right. a good example of how periodically this happens so it's both in terms of you know downtime being a massive issue um, when it comes to healthcare and then also hacks which are kind of the ultimate downtime mm-hmm. um, ultimate downtime where you know you simply don't have access to Athena and a lot of hospitals now um, are actually implementing, in addition to their electronic systems that they spent billions of dollars on, they're also building out paper systems in the event of an emergency. Really? Uh, yeah, so they're actually having to train their doctors on both systems where, you know, they're resorting to paper, um, you know, as a fallback if they do get hacked. Yeah, I mean, vinyl records are... <laughs> flying off the shelves these days so it's so we're going a little <laughs> yeah, bit yeah i think paper sometimes. records might make a comeback in certain areas <laughs> you never know title of your white paper is the blockchain for personalized medicine and when i think of personalized medicine there's many many ways of looking at it from the genomic standpoint there's the environmental factors that affect a person there's the diet and exercise and just the hereditary kind of mm-hmm. factors what do you mean when you say blockchain for personalized medicine? Yeah, so there there are tons of different ways to describe, you know, precision medicine and personalized medicine, uh, as you kind of alluded to. I think like, you know, you had Dr. Church on this podcast before, so I'm not going to talk about genomics or pretend to be an expert in that. <laughs> my, my truth is much more in terms of electronic health records, wearable data, um, those areas. Um, we, we do have a chief scientific officer that you know has a PhD in specifically genomics, so mm-hmm. um, I do you know consult with him when needed. Um, when I think of and, and and so it's kind of like we've we've had essentially in my mind a massive disconnect between where scientists like George Church are able to bring us and where current um, healthcare practices are today. So when I think of personalized medicine, what I think of is you know, tailoring a treatment to the specific characteristics of a patient. So you don't just diagnose them and give them a drug. Um, you diagnose them, figure out their age, figure out everything about them, including what genetic mutations they have. So for example, I worked a lot on out-positive lung cancer um, at my first company I worked with. And essentially, um, without positive lung cancer, you have a particular target now. So when I think of precision medicine, it's really about determining targets for diseases instead of just figuring out what disease a patient has. And then it's using the proper um, drug to address that target. And the big problem, what's really been holding personalized medicine back is if we don't even have your data from your primary care physician when we see you as a specialist, how are we supposed to tailor that care? If we don't even have the most data, basic data about you, and very few health systems are ready for your genomic data. So the only one I've seen that's you know even remotely prepared is Geisinger. Um, hmm. They've done a ton around precision medicine, and they they essentially have integrated genomic data in with their EHR. Um, but a lot of health systems are still struggling with just getting your basic data, so that most of them are not at the point where they're able to handle genomic data, and we're not anywhere close to really understanding, um, frankly, how the body works. So a lot of the research 
that I've done previously around kind of responsiveness to treatments, um, it was with very kind of, it was with pretty pathetic data compared to what we could access using Coral Health's platform. So knowing essentially all the lab tests of a patient, being able to follow them for several years in a row with that kind of rich data, that um, even just a year ago, that was not at all common. We have very, very little data about how patients in the real world are responding to treatments. So outside of a clinical trial where we have about, you know, typically about 300 patients in a clinical trial, um, and those patients were hand-selected for that clinical trial, essentially, we don't really have an understanding of how treatments are working. And we haven't really done a very good job of capturing, you know, adverse events that patients have or, you know, exactly which patients respond best to which drugs. So there's a tremendous amount of research that still has to be done using data um, like what we're aggregating at Coral Health and pairing that with genomic data, wearable data, as well as your bio data. So essentially, our vision for Coral Health isn't just medical records, it's all your health data. And in fact, companies like 23andMe make it quite easy using their API to pull in data from them. Because essentially, at the end of the day, you own your data as a patient. And because you own that data, anyone you ask, you do own that data legally under HIPAA. So HIPAA isn't just an excuse to not share data. What's actually in the text is you have the right to your medical records within 30 days. And, you know, you don't have a similar right that I know of to your genomic data, but in their, you know, at their own discussion, they have made that data available to you, both Ancestry and 23andMe, where essentially, um, even if some of them don't have APIs, they allow you to download a complete PDF of it. Um, so we're kind of a unique point in healthcare where data standardization has taken off to a point it never was before. We A lot of kind of a critical mass of patients are now using smartphones to manage their health. So we're about three quarters of all adults have smartphones. So we're at a point where we have both the capability as well as kind of perfect priming to move data to control the patient and then use them as a mechanism to share information. So that's, it's, it's pretty ideal because, you know, frankly, I don't think we would be able to support precision medicine without moving data control to patients. If we were relying on doctors and EHR vendors to move that data, um, we'd essentially have to wait a very, very long time because they haven't even figured out how to move medical records yet. Right, because consumers and patients, you know, they don't always live in the same area. Their providers might move. They're, they might be seeing different specialists. So I think that's a really important point you made was that Coral Health will be able to potentially track all that data from different sources over time. So that longitudinal data is what's key here. Yeah, longitudinal information is incredibly important. Um, you know, Athena had pretty good data. I was pretty familiar with it. So we, you know, we started with our Athena clinical solution. We, we started more like revenue management, and then we moved into clinicals um, around 2011, I believe. So we had, you know, about, when I was there, about six years of data, of longitudinal data that was decently rich. The problem was we never knew if you... Um, if we weren't seeing you, we, ne- we never knew what we were missing. We knew when you went to right. the, you know, practices, we had no idea what was happening when you went to an epic practice you know, or a Cerner practice, which is very, very common. So 
we'd have no way to know if you not having a visit to a Athena practice was because you were doing great or because you were doing so terribly that you were in some hospital getting, you know, very, you know, a lot of treatment for that. Under a different um, EHR as well. Exactly. Which is incredibly common. Um, so that, that was kind of the, that was the situation. And then similarly with claims data, which is kind of the other um, data source that is very common for under for kind of being, for using that to understand how populations respond to treatments. That data has similar issues where um, essentially patients are changing insurers fairly often. So no one insurer had, you know, good longitudinal data for more than a couple of years because, you know, you quit your job, you lose your insurance, <laughs> right. you start another insurer. Um, so no one really has good longitudinal data about patients, especially when we're also talking about having medical records and not just the costs of a patient. Yeah, so give the data to the person who's actually going to be experiencing those treatments or diagnoses. It makes a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, and, and honestly, there's like a massive opportunity to incentivize patients to share that information. How? So, for example, 85% of all trials right now, they're either delayed or closed because they're not able to recruit enough patients. So these are trials that, you know, you've already tested the drug. Um, oftentimes, in phase one or two, you spend a lot of money on this. Um, but the pharmaceutical company is not able to find enough patients that are interested in this. One of the main ways um, that pharmaceutical companies are still recruiting patients is by putting ads on subways. So, you know, we're both from Boston. Yeah, we still see that. them all the time. We're, we're seeing ads on the subway for a clinical trial at Mass General. Um, is that an efficient way to recruit patients? No. What Coral Health is able to do is, with your permission, we're able to essentially... Um, we've structured clinicaltrials.gov where all the studies are posted. We've pulled that data into our platform hmm. and we're able to alert you if you want about trials you qualify for in your area. So, you know, we've noticed based on your health records, um, and we do this full, in a fully private way where this code is sent to your device. So essentially the encrypted data never leaves your device, but we're able to figure out what treatment, what trials you qualify for. And then if you want, we can ping you and say, hey, here's a trial near you. It's paying patients about $1,000 to participate. Um, these are the things that you would need to do to participate in that trial. So we can essentially bring, um, we can recruit directly to where patients are in a way that is entirely controlled by them. So it's no longer um, reliant on incredibly inefficient ad campaigns. And then for patients that um, do want to participate, and that's about 3 million Americans a year that do want to participate in trials already, um, we can make it far easier for them to participate. So they don't have to collect all the medical records. They don't have to go through many screenings to figure out if they qualify. We know that ahead of time because they've already uploaded their data onto our platform. Interesting. Has there been any like pilot programs where you've tried this with your program, with uh, Coral Health? Yeah, so there, there are competitors that have done this exact thing that are doing very, very well right now. Um, we haven't launched a pilot of this yet because we haven't launched our patient app yet. Um, we're, we are launching the patient app this September. Um, if, you, right. if you're interested, feel free to send an email to info at mycoralhealth.com. Yeah, and I'll put this in the notes. I'll put this in the show notes too for all the yeah, listeners. Yeah, that'd be great because we are, we are doing a private beta right now ahead of the release, and it's great to get user feedback on the app. Um, but once we do launch, we'll be doing that in tandem with a large marketing campaign to drive users. 
And this is kind of one of the first features that we're building out. In addition to allowing you to figure out which treatments you qualify for, we can also allow you, if you choose, to figure out which drug trials you qualify for as well. Right, and I actually tested out the demo, and it was interesting because you know I was able to, I know it was a sandbox, but I was able to click on a, a button where I can actually connect to my you know, sandbox EHR or medical records. So I was on my chart, Epic My Chart. I was able to import fake data and all scripts as well. Cerner. So you want to talk a little bit about, you know, how yeah, important that is? Yeah. So that's actually a major development. It's another reason this wasn't possible until recently. Essentially, these these large EHR vendors where your data is being stored, um, so Epic, Cerner, etc. Um, they're now opening up access to their data to their patients via third-party developers like Coral Health. So essentially, they allow us to integrate with their databases if a patient asks for that. So via our app, the patient goes in, they select a provider that they've seen, so it might be Mass General Hospital. Um, you log in with the same patient portal credentials that you already have from Mass General. That's big then, single sign-on is huge. Yeah, exactly. So single sign-on for that entire institution, and then any time you go back to Mass General, your records automatically come into the app. So you only have to sign in once for the various places that you've received care. Instead of having to you know, continuously sign, sign in each time yeah. um, you want to access a different provider. Um, and frankly, like, I don't even have access to most of my medical records at this point. It's, it's kind of lucky that... I don't have that many yet, <laughs> um, but imagine, you know, you've been moving across the country, you see many different providers, individually calling up those providers and asking them to send you records is just would be prohibitively time intensive. Um, and most people just don't know what their blood pressure was, you know, a couple of years ago or what their cholesterol was. Coral Health makes it really easy for you to pull all that historical data about yourself into our app. What we're building on top of that is a machine learning layer to essentially um, drive insights about you. So we're able to essentially, based on um, various data that we'll be pulling in about your habits, if you choose, we can tell you how your habits are driving different health outcomes that you're seeing in your medical records. So that's kind of an additional layer of value that we're adding. Is when, really do gonna be, mm-hmm. when do you think that's going to be um, available? Yeah, so we're in talks with one company right now. Um, it's pretty nice that Google Fit actually makes all that data already available um, to train models on. So we are building this out in-house as well, but currently we're in talks with a few different companies to partner to bring in that habit data. So, you know, what's your commute like? How much are you exercising? Um, what's your sleep like? And, and then what we're able to do is then link those habits that you have and link that to actual health outcomes. Like your blood pressure is getting worse, your cholesterol is spiked, mm-hmm. things like that. So that we're not just you know a place for you to store your data, we're a place for you to you know put your data so you can get insights about yourself. Right, and those insights are not just useful for the individual, but if you look at them globally or in a population, you're here you're talking about population health and you know drawing kind of insights from people. It's basically like big trials, but not for drugs, but just in general. Yeah, I mean, so you can both understand, um, you can both use that data to give you richer insights about yourself. Like, here's how you compare to other patients with your disease or other patients your age or in this area. Um, but you could also, honestly, one of the things I'm most excited about down the road is you could run studies and, you know, 
further understanding of treatments without ever needing to involve people at clinical trials or anything like that. Just mm-hmm. observe them. Um, you know, op- observational studies have always been around. You just observe people doing what they normally do. It's just with coral health, you're able to observe them much more accurately without all the problems that are inherent um, with observational data, like where people change their patterns to kind of, you know, fit what their study, uh, what they think the study uh, organizer wants. Yeah, I, I think that's huge. Observational, longitudinal, more accurate studies. That can be, yeah. you know, we wouldn't have to put people, because people are already taking, you know, various medications either with or without yeah. prescriptions. I mean, 80% of Americans are on, um, you know, are, are on a regular prescription. So this is a very common issue. Um, the problem is we don't really have good longitudinal data about what those medications are doing to you over time. In fact, like one of the best examples of how limited our data understanding is, is that even the CDC doesn't have a good understanding um, of weight longitudinally. A lot of the large, you know, big longitudinal studies that were done were conducted back in the 60s. There's not a good understanding of um, how weight changes at various age groups in a good longitudinal uh, way. So it's, it's kind of ridiculous that a lot of our basic recommendations that we kind of take for granted are actually kind of, they have the basis in very, very weak data. Um, and it's really time that we help using this patient data to, you know, help us understand health much more, much, much clearer, and then help relay those insights back to our users. Hmm. So essentially, um, I think we can, you know, make a major difference in terms of how we understand how the human body works, how our treatments are affecting us, what our sleep is doing, all these questions that we're, you know, obviously interested in, but haven't had, you know, the data at this point. Now we have the data, it's just a matter of, you know, reclaiming ownership over that Mm -hmm. and then letting people drive insights back to you. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you said you mentioned your competitors and there are already people kind of working on this kind of type of project. What's your key differentiator? Yeah, so there's competitors in a number of different areas. Um, So... For example, there's already com- a competitor, Apple Health, that's building off of Smart on Fire. Um, where we're different from Apple Health is we built our entire platform using Flutter.io. It's a new um, library out of Google that's essentially used to make it much, much easier to create cross-platform apps. So our app doesn't just work on iOS, it also works seamlessly on Android. So. Um, essentially, where we're differentiated is we, we're the first to market with an Android solution here. Um, but at the same time, we're also able to go out to all these different healthcare organizations that aren't using Apple and say, hey, here's one app that you can push to your patients to help them manage their health. And you don't need to push Apple and us. Here's one solution that works for both sets of your patients. Um, so that's a key differentiator in terms of how we're approaching the market for our Smart and Fire app. In terms of everything else that we're doing, there are already companies that help you um, figure out what trials you qualify for. None of them are using EHR data that you already have. So what we're able to do is essentially leverage that existing data so that you don't have to take the time to fill out these forms. You know, healthcare for some reason revolves about around filling out the same redundant information 
each time you go somewhere, and it's the same with clinical trials. You're filling out the same information about your conditions. We already know that data, and we can make that experience far more seamless for you, and we can make that um, work in the background so that we're figuring out what studies you qualify on your behalf, and you're only ever notified if you want when you qualify for a study. You don't have to go out and look for that. So that's a major kind of improvement there. Um, in terms of prior authorizations, again, it's a similar situation where there is a solution that exists. So Compromise is kind of a market leader, followed closely by Availity. Um, but neither of the solutions have your comprehensive health data, so they're not able to automate most prior authorizations. Um, and then in addition, no one's yet really done kind of machine learning in terms of connecting wearable data and habits that you're getting from a user's phone to their actual outcomes that you observe in their medical records. So we're really at the forefront of that. It's, it's a pretty cool it's a pretty cool area. I was a really really adverse initially to machine learning because it's definitely a that? buzz term right now. Just um, because it was a buzz term or were there like yeah, technological? Everyone, in my experience, it's just like throwing machine learning in at the end of it. I mean, I think the best example is kind of some of the blockchain companies I saw where you're like, you know, machine learning, blockchain, yeah. I'm forgetting the, oh, cloud-based. You could kind of throw three buzzwords. I've seen some companies that have, that have fit an impressive number of buzzwords into a single sentence about themselves. So I was a little bit hesitant about that, but I am very excited about the potential um, to essentially use big data um, on a cohort of people like you to give you better insights about yourself. I think that's kind of really what we should be focusing on right now. Right, and it's not just the data. Also, it's the communities that can form around, you know, certain types of ailments or illnesses. You know, you have companies like Patients Like Me, which are kind of using these forum-based uh, communities to help people connect with people who have similar diseases, and then they can talk about different treatments or tips and tricks about uh, how to survive or how to not survive, but um, you know, manage their symptoms. Yeah, for sure. We're actually in a number, uh, we're in discussions with a number of those organizations right now. Um, we didn't really, we didn't want to approach them until the app was about ready to launch, just so we had something to, you know, to think of demo versus just being like, sure. hey, we've got this great idea. You know, everyone hears that. Everyone's got an idea. Yeah, everyone's got that right now. Um, so when we just started talking to them, but we've already got, um, you know, we're already in partnership discussions with a number of them. And it is, you know, for that reason that you just mentioned, there are already these existing communities of patients. They're just not really getting the resources they need. So these groups help them to, you know, as you mentioned, figure out what drugs they qualify for, help them get coupons for drugs. This is a big thing um, right now because, hmm. you know, prescription is so expensive. Um, so we're working with these groups to essentially, you know, help to market the app. So in addition to the paid advertising that we're doing, um, we're also marketing our app through these advocacy groups so that they can market this as a solution for their patients so that those patients are able to, you know, obviously um, control their health data and better manage and use that to better manage their health. Um, yeah, so their mission is quite well aligned with ours, especially as it relates to, you know, not just having that data sit with the patient, but having the patient um, use that data to, you know, further research. Like, ultimately, um, patients you know, that I've worked with before, especially, you know, in chronic conditions like multiple sclerosis, they, they have a big desire to help out other patients like them. And, you know, essentially what these groups do is help those patients get together and, you know, what's a better way to help patients like you 
than to figure out how patients um, are responding to different treatments and to figure out you know what patient what treatment's right for a given patient. So that's the kind of research that um, these advocacy groups are able to further, and that's why we're really excited to partner with them as well to help get the patient app out. Are you seeking uh, investment money from VCs? Or are you doing an ICO type of thing? What, what, how's your funding going? Yes, yeah, so we raised about $4 million in seed funding um, back in February of this year. Uh, we are not doing an ICO or a token sale, so all of our fundraising was through equity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so in many ways, despite being a blockchain company, we're operating very much like a you know, regular startup would. Um, we're not at this point raising additional funds right now, um, but we are, you know, essentially our current plan is to launch the app, hit the type of adoption that we think we can hit, and then go out for more funding to really scale the solution. So we, we'd be looking more at like a Series B um, potentially than, you know, than an earlier phase. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the idea. I think. I think mm-hmm. ICOs, you know, were very much 2017. They were a great way for a lot of companies to raise money. Um, I think, I hope that those startups all converted from ETH so that their runway is not a fourth of what it was yeah. in, uh, at the end of the year. Um, I'm sure some did, but not all. Definitely not. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a crazy time. But uh, well, They're doing it now, right? That that's, what the, that's why the market is kind of... Um, kind of not tanking, but it's definitely down. And I think a lot of it is due to these companies who've had stores of ether, Ethereum or Ether just selling off to make sure that they have something so they could pay their employees. Yeah, exactly. And like it's kind of a vicious cycle where like the more it goes down, the less runway you have. So uh, people are selling pretty, at a pretty low point, or hopefully low point. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's pretty fantastic in that, you know, healthcare has traditionally moved really slowly. But, you know, with ICOs, we saw about probably around 80 companies or so get some amount of funding. So that's, that's like 80 startups that wouldn't exist probably without, you know, that token sale model. And that's 80 startups that, you know, are pushing these established healthcare entities to move faster. Because uh, I really don't think the innovation is going to come from the top here. I've been inside these organizations. They do mm-hmm. not move very quickly. Right. Um, Athena was moving in a good direction before they were bought out by a hedge fund. Um, so even when you're confident of a company, um, it can change quickly. And I think it's really important for these startups to be driving innovation that now that we have access to data, the necessary conditions to kind of create a digital health economy of apps, um, we're starting to hit those. And that's when we're going to see um, you know, apps not just helping you take your medications, but pulling in your data from sources like Apple and Coral where you're already able to see that app with all your data so that it already knows what drugs you're taking and you don't have to enter that to figure out when you should take um, them each day. So essentially every single app that we have today in healthcare could be dramatically improved by pulling in medical records into that app. Um, it's a realization that Apple's obviously come to is you know they've already released an SDK back in June mm-hmm. for their health record data. Um, but in addition to these kind of existing apps benefiting from this data, you can also, as I mentioned, um, unlock a whole other set of, you know, whole new markets as well as um, whole new uses for that data around helping patients learn about their own health. Definitely. And as you mentioned, like 
EHRs are always also starting to play nice, which is a great thing. And that's a requirement because they do hold a lot of that information, health information. Yeah, this this would be possible without them. It just would move a lot slower because I'd have to go to every single hospital and ask them to get individually. access. Yeah, individually, which we are doing in tandem um, just because it's it, we can make the user experience a little bit better if we work with the hospitals than we have it now. So we still want to do that, and we are opening, you know, if any doctors watching this podcast, we'd be happy to talk to you about partnering because, you know, we do want to make that experience about pulling data into the patient's phone as simple as possible. And, you know, while we can make it far better than it's today, if we work with you directly, um, we can essentially make that even better than it is. So tell me a little bit about the team, the Coral Health team, and how you got started. You're based, the company's actually based in Vancouver, Canada, right? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so we're headquartered in Vancouver. Um, we're opening a second office in Toronto now, hopefully building out a Boston office soon after. Um, so a lot of our developer team is in Toronto. A lot of our operations are more in Vancouver. And then we'll probably put sales more in Boston just because it's pretty easy to find people with healthcare experience and sales in Boston. So it's a good good market for that. Um, in terms of the team, let's see. So we were co-founded by Andy Park, who I kind of mentioned earlier in the podcast, as well as Jerry Mullen. Um, so I knew Andy way, way back uh, in high school. So oh, nice. yeah, he, he had actually founded that other company that I talked about um, and sold it right before uh, we co-founded Coral Health. So that was about in sold his shares in about mid to early 2017. We founded Core Health just a couple of months after um, last summer. So yeah, so essentially the team, um, we then quickly brought on Jeremy, another of our co-founders. Um, and Jeremy was actually uh, lived in a duplex with Nick, our CTO. So we found Nick that way, just because they were neighbors um, in Toronto. Um, and Nick's just fantastic. He was able to scale our dev team very, very quickly. So Nick's kind of, uh, he's taught me a tremendous amount about distributed databases. Um, he's worked um, very, very intimately. Another buzzword, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a buzzword, but uh, Nick can tell you why Mango sure. sucks and why you should be using a blockchain. So why, if what you're sucks? skeptical, why MangoDB, okay. uh, sorry, MongoDB. MongoDB, okay. <laughs> MongoDB sucks. Um, we wrote a, he wrote a blog about that. So if you're kind of a blockchain skeptic, don't dismiss it just yet. Um, the blockchain, I think, will make a pretty big resurgence in about a year or two, especially in healthcare. Um, so Nick is just kind of a deep, deep resource on distributed databases, but he's also developed a number of consumer apps just on the side when he's at IBM. Um, so he's a lot of experience in creating consumer-facing apps and marketing those as well. Um, yeah, so that's, that's a team. Um, that's very interesting. Then, I also I was looking at your advisory board as well, and I think you recently... Um, you know, welcomed in a new member, uh, Don Tapscott, and he's written Blockchain Revolution, and he's been pretty influential in the blockchain space. How's have you met him yet? Like, how's that been? Yeah, so I, I had the opportunity to uh, meet with Don back at Consensus actually. So right before he um, signed on as a partner, he um, so he's pretty active in the Toronto community, which has a very good um, blockchain kind of set of industries just because of uh, Vitalik's from Toronto. Right. Um, <laughs> so, so Toronto is quite active in the blockchain space, and Don's really kind of at the forefront of that. So he, he's been phenomenal both in terms of connections to other startups um, in Toronto, 
and kind of setting us up with healthcare advisors. Um, and he's also just been, you know, a deep resource for blockchain experience as well. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to kind of, you know, leverage that yet because, as I mentioned, the healthcare industry is still a little bit immature for blockchain solutions. Um, but we hope to really, you know, drive that once we've kind of hit our user adoption goals for the patient app. Hmm. Very interesting. Do you want to tell the audience a little bit about the roadmap and what they can expect in the next, you know, three months, six months, a year or two? Yeah, sure. So right now we're in a private beta of our app. So um, we'll have the download instructions in the uh, podcast notes. Um, we'll be releasing um, the app into both the Google Play Store as well as the App Store um, this September. So stay tuned. We're just waiting on the last kind of partnerships with our EHR vendors for releasing. Um, after that, we're building out um, probably the next one to three months following that, we'll be building out the provider version. So we're still working with our advisory doctors to figure out the exact interface for that. Um, a big problem in healthcare is typically, uh, you know, devs create something that had never been seen by a doctor before, and then doctors don't know how to use it. Uh, that's pretty much what happened with electronic medical record systems. So we're really designing this as a way for doctors to really be seeing um, you know, their patient's data really quickly being able to process patients that they hadn't seen before um, so that they're able to effectively treat them when that new patient comes in. Um, so that'll be about one to, so we're talking about still 2018, probably by the end of 2018. And t in tandem with that, we're building out um, through partnerships primarily um, that machine learning capability around using your habits to give you insights about how your medical records are changing. Um, so that will be ideally before the end of the year as well. Following that, um, kind of early 2019 will be focused on uh, mostly securing payer partners for a prior authorization solution that we mentioned. So we've already been in talks with a number of them. Um, the discussion was basically come back to us when you have users. So we're hitting our user numbers um, initially in 2018. You know, What's that target? Uh, it's... So it's, it's a little, we have a couple different mechanisms that I talked about to get patients onto our platform. So, you know, hospitals, patient advocacy groups, direct marketing. Um, we're hoping for, by the end of the year, 300,000 patients um, using our system. So my chart, Epic Solution, which is pretty terrible, has a couple million users. And then Healthy Life, which is developed by Cerner, has a couple million as well. Um, our app, you know, because we're pulling the records directly to your phone, is has a much better IT backend than anything they've built. So, you know, we don't rely on VPN connections to pull your records. So we have a way smoother user experience than any of those. Um, so we're, we're pretty confident we can hit those, especially, you know, if we hit our initial, if we're, if we're noticing adoption, mm -hmm. uh, if we're running out of marketing funds, we'll probably just do another raise to pour that into paid marketing as well. Um, so we're hitting, we're talking about 300,000 by the end of the year, and ideally about an additional million throughout 2019. Hmm. And then once we hit that kind of scale, we can already unlock a lot of those cool um, monetization applications that I talked about around automating prior authorizations, um, pairing people up to clinical trials, all those types of use cases. Is there anything maybe that I've not asked you that you would have liked to share with the audience? Um, I think that's everything. I think I think my main 
takeaway would be this, having control of your data, even if you're healthy, is phenomenal. I highly encourage you to try out our app. This is essentially, you know, you're more or less laying the foundations for all the amazing apps that will come on top of this. So it's really important to get in now so that together we can start making healthcare work and feel much better and much more in line with our experience in every other industry that we're used to. Philip Parker from Coral Health, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope to hear about your progress in later episodes, hopefully. So thanks yeah. again. You're welcome to come back. Appreciate thanks it. Thanks so much, Ray. Appreciate it. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org, and remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.